For I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, of ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth, teaching, or he that exhorteth, on exhortation, and he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth, with diligence, he that showeth mercy, with cheerfulness. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, uh, you've been merciful to show us the gospel, to show it clearly to us, to show it how it is uh, received by faith through Christ and all the benefits that we have in Christ. Lord, you've taught us now what the pattern of life is for all Christians, and now you will teach us how we ought to live as the body, Lord, as the church, as the body of Christ, Lord, as we ought to live as unique, diverse, gifted saints within the whole, within one body. And so we pray that we would be in awe and we would delight in how you bring unity, Lord, from a, divi a diverse people. And so clarify in our minds, Lord, how we ought to live and then how we ought to worship you in these ways. In Christ's name, amen. Verses 1 and 2 really lay the foundation of the Christian pattern for life. Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's why I spent so much time on those two verses. In the end, I ended up preaching six sermons on those two verses, and I think it was called for. But now, as the apostle has laid that foundation for the pattern of a Christian life for all Christians, without, without any distinction, verses 1 and 2 have to do with all Christians without any distinction, and, and before he goes on to exhort us and really to, to identify the church's responsibility in matters of living with one another and ministering with one another and functioning, that's a word that's very important, as the body, we need to remember something about the apostle himself. When he began his letter in Romans chapter 1, he said of himself that he, he described himself, Paul, a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, called set apart for the gospel of God. In verse 5, he says again, uh, he's speaking of Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Grace and apostleship. Remember this connection, grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Paul's apostolic office, his calling, this vocation that he had 
was given or granted or appointed to him by God. And so his calling came by God's authority. This is God's uh, man, if you will. It's someone sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is someone who then has the authority of God and the authority of Christ. And for the purpose, we see there in those two verses, of establishing the church by the true message of God, the true gospel of God, which concerns the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of God concerning his Son. So he establishes the church in obedience to that message. And then we see this morning that Paul has already fulfilled that calling really in this, in this book through chapter, chapter 11. He's had everything to do with the gospel and the benefits that pour out to us and the mindset that we ought to see through history and God's ordering of it and his sovereignty and then how we ought to conduct ourselves as Christians in the world. But now he brings that up apostolic authority to bear upon the church itself in our conduct within the church and how to establish, indeed, order in the church. You know, that was something that I, as when I was growing up, there were several of my friends, and you, you may have remembered this. Uh, I don't believe in an organized religion. Do anybody ever remember that? I don't believe in organized religion. And that was something that was very popular as something, you know, organized religion just breeds hypocrites and just religion and religiosity and outward formalism and all those things. And it's funny because most of those disorganized religionists, they just devise their own organized form of religion because you find out very quickly without organization you have nothing but chaos. You cannot have a body of people working together in just a mess of chaos. Uh, and so Paul here, part of his apostolic ministry, as we'll see in verse 1, really the apostolic authority, or verse 3 here, the first point is Paul's apostolic authority to establish order in the church. Look at what he says in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, this is that grace that we ought to connect with verse 5 back in chapter 1. He says that he received grace and apostleship. And so this grace is his calling. His apostleship, which has the authority of God on it. So we can see the authority that he speaks here with. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of, among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Now, Paul, here's a difference between, say, the authority of a, an elder, pastor, and the authority of Paul. I get my authority from God's word directly. Paul is not citing any scripture. He's not citing anything. He is saying, the grace given to me, here's what I declare to you, and do it. Reckon this. This is God's will for your life. Here is the authority of an apostle. The grace given to Paul grants him this authority to say what he says here to everyone among you. And this is important to how we view scripture to how we view even the formulation of the church. The church was founded upon the apostles and prophets and the chief cornerstone being Christ himself, but that establishment was authoritative. It came through the apostles here, Paul being one of them. 
And it's important to how we view scripture and how we see the unfolding of the church in history. These are not hopeful words of a philosopher or a scientist. This is very unique language when it comes to books. That someone can, can claim for themselves your allegiance to what they are telling you to do. This is not them, him testing his discovery against human understanding or a theory. This is authority. When we come to the word of God, we are coming to authority. A claim of authority. But this authority has been granted by Paul. And so Paul says later in his ministry or at another point, he does not lord his authority over others. He exercises it in the measure, proportion to which God has given it to him. That's very important as we come to our text today to remember that. We often speak of scripture rightly so as the Holy Spirit's inspired word from God. God's Spirit, Holy Spirit inspired word, and that's right. But we also need to recognize that it's important and appropriate to see in it the apostolic authority that God gave to the church and to their ministries, granted by God himself. The apostles had an authority that no other office of the church can claim. None can claim the same authority. In fact, Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. So he's saying the word you heard from us, that's the word of God. As the apostle he, of God, he had that authority, that claim. And now that Paul is reminded of his authority, I think it's important that we take very seriously what he has to say to us, the church. He said it first to Rome, the church at Rome, but this is applicable to us just as much here this morning. Second, the second point, that we ought to be united in humility by God's measured gifts. Verses, verse 3, we'll really focus on verse 3 on this point. He says, I say to everyone among you, and now this he's saying in authority, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, God here is very uh, important. Um, John Stott points this out, and I think it's very important to keep this in your mind. He says God here without de designation, and usually when we see God without designation or as is not the Father or the, the Son or the Holy Spirit, we should understand that is God the Father, uh, God meaning God the Father here. But it's very interesting because in Ephesians 4, verse 7, Paul describes the gifts given to the church as coming from Christ, God the Son, Jesus Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the gifts there are described as coming from the Holy Spirit. And so we have this uh, remarkable picture in Scripture that the gifts that we receive are gifts from God. The Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. These are triune gifts coming from a triune God, or not triune gifts, but they, these gifts are coming from the triune God. What a remarkable observation that we should notice that God 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit assigns to us these gifts that are to be exercised, this measure of faith here that is described. Notice first that Paul speaks of a union among a diversity of believers here. He says, every one among you. So he's grouping them together, distinguishing them and grouping them together. together. Fundamentally, their unity is dependent upon humility. He says not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And this is not just merely that we would know something, but that we would recognize a truth about ourselves. Paul is not speaking about humility in a vague sense here. He explains to us why we ought to be humble in this context. First, he says, but, and so that's important, instead of thinking too highly of ourselves, but is the contrast here to pride, to think with sober judgment. And this means that you are sensible, that you are discerning, You're able to make the right assessment. Your judgment is not impaired or clouded. This is what happens when we're not sober. We're clear, we're acute in our assessment of ourselves. Sober judgment will curtail the tendency in any church towards pride. Why? Because we see, second, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned Here is what sober judgment assesses. Here is how it assesses itself. A person, you will assess yourself soberly when you understand this about yourself. Namely, that God has assigned to each of you, to you, one of us, each of us in the church, a measure of faith. Now, there's some difference of opinion as to what measure of faith means. These are not altogether easy texts to decipher exactly, but we do know generally what the apostle is stating here. His word, you heard when Jim read the King James, you heard the word proportion. And the word measure and proportion really are helpful terms to understand how we should understand what Paul is saying here. Paul is describing something that God has given within bounds, within boundaries. We should think of it as when you measure out a cup of flour, right? You're limiting that. You're putting a certain amount of that substance into your mix, but that is a very important distinction. You're you're giving it boundaries, and that's the way we should understand this. Measure should be in our mind that God has granted, and we'll see later in verse 6, gift, graces, that's how we should understand this measure of faith, that God is putting parameters on how you are to be functioning within the body of Christ. You, as an individual, within this bigger whole, this union. And so, we should understand measure of faith is a limiting proportion. But what does faith mean here? I think F.F. Bruce was helpful to define what faith means because faith is not used here in the way that, say, exactly we would understand it as we were looking at justification by faith alone in Christ alone. That faith uh, comes in very different scales. You you have true faith in Christ, and even if it's a, a small faith, if it's true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's saving faith. But here he's talking about this gift of faith 
that is operable in the church in your outworking of the function of the body. And that might be all confusing, but God willing, we'll bring it to some uh, clarity as we go along. What is faith here? F.F. Bruce says that faith denotes the spiritual power given to each Christian for the discharge of his or her special responsibility within the body. And I think that's a good definition of what faith means. But I'd simply add myself that faith is itself a humbling element in that discharge. Faith recognizes that what I am in this body, I am because of God. That limiting proportion has been done, it's been granted, it's been given to me by God. Therefore, the measure of faith that God has assigned to us enables us first to perform our calling or gift with spiritual understanding. We recognize what I'm doing in this body, what I am in this body, is not of my own making, primarily. You know, one of the reasons I can talk about Jason Barber here, he's not here this morning. You know, he's a Ph.D. in, in uh, Old Testament. Um, and you wouldn't know that when you talk to him. But one of the failures of the church in time is to look at somebody and say, well, they've got this many initials behind their name, and so they're very valuable to the church. You know, they've got this measure of intellect. If you're familiar with Jordan Peterson, he's a very famous online uh, uh, personality, author, speaker. He's somewhat standing against this new progressivism. He was standing on it in, on, on the grounds of secular ph philosophy, especially psychology, uh, but always with an intermixture of Christ as being this supreme archetypal figure of humanity. Now it seems that he's being faced with Christ as, as a matter of someone who he must trust in. And he's, he seems to be going through uh, at least great conviction of soul, and, and many see that God may be converting him. And, and that, that would be a wonderful thing. But some people, as I hear them talk about that, they say, oh, we need the intellect of someone like Jordan Peterson. We need that kind of great intellectual man and his powers of intellect and abilities and all these different disciplines. And I think what we're learning here is that we can have all these natural and physical abilities and we can, and, and it's good to develop them. It's good to uh, pursue knowledge and all of these things for the glory of God. But what we're learning here is that the, the church operates it functions properly when the gifts of God are recognized that they are being used as God has benefited the church to use them. It is not how many letters, and this is what Jason is such a blessing as, you know, you, you talk to him and he'll make you seem like you're his equal, which in learning, most of us are not his equal, but in Christ and in the activity of the Holy Spirit within the body, God is not setting up pyramids that you're greater or you're better because you have this natural ability. This is where Paul is drawing us to. See your value, see your worth within the body of Christ in proportion to how God has measured his gifts 
his faith, your faith, to you as you, as we'll see, exercise them. In other words, a sober judgment of ourselves here within the body of Christ doesn't have to do with natural gifts primarily, but that which God bestows on us in order for us to function properly as the body of Christ. Aren't we taken away with the people? And nowadays, we're even more so idolizing the people who get up on the stage with all the bright lights, and they play their guitar so well, and they sing their songs so well, and they have their drums right on cue, and and the lights are flashing, and I'm talking about Hillsong, and I'm talking about Bethel, and we'll say, those people are the people in the church. That's the church. Wow, look at that production. Faith recognizes that we are individually granted various gifts, complementary gifts, which are needed for the church to function. In verse 4, we'll see that word, important word as it is, as a body. So third, we see a diversity a diverse, unified body of Christ, verses 4 through 6. For as in one body we have many members. And this is just very simple. The analogy is, think about your body. You have various parts in your body, right, making up the whole. And the members do not have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. The analogy is fairly straightforward, just as in a human body there are distinct organs and tissues, etc., working together for the sake of the whole, so that God has ordained by means of bestowing gifts and graces to the church for the sake of each member working together for the sake of the whole. But notice something important. It is Christ that those individuals are given, and that for the sake of the well-being of our unity in Christ. It is that he benefits, ultimately. Ultimately, the goal of God's gifts to the church is so that Christ's body, and that's, by the way, here, I'm putting on this portion the description of Christ's body, him as the head. Here, Paul just says, you are a body. You're like a body. He gives the analogy. Other places were the body of Christ. So as I use that phrase, you might squabble, hey, that, bot, that term, the body of Christ, isn't here. I think that's the way we should understand this. We are a body because of Christ, right? And that's how he says it, in Christ. You are a one body in Christ there in verse 5. He is the head of the body. Colossians 1.18 says he is the head of the body, the church. That is, he is the Lord of the church. We get our identity in Christ. When we work this way, the reason why I say this abounds to him is because when we, the church, are working properly as a body, each member working according to the gifts, the measure of faith that God has given to us, in harmony, we are reflecting Christ to the world. We'll see more about that later. We know that Paul uses the same body analogy throughout the New Testament. As I said, and many of these analogies that he uses, in them he outlines the differences in callings, gifts, in order to function as the body of Christ. He says in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You see that? You see what it's for? For the building up of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 and 28. 
Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. So in our text, Paul describes, as we'll see, what some of these gifts and graces are, this measure of faith that God has given to us. And that we see, number four, the differing gifts for Christian unity, for the proper function of this body. How does the body of Christ, the church, function properly when we all are different? Well, all of the, the analogy points to how we function properly. In fact, we need to be different for the church to function properly. You see that? The diversity of gifts is so that we will function properly as a body. And so here we see a list of differing gifts in verses 6 through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Here's something for us. Are you using your spiritual gifts? Do you know what your spiritual gift is? This is very difficult sometimes for us. You know how we recognize what our spiritual gifts are? One of the very lost means of understanding what gifts we have is by being involved, by being a church, by coming together, by assembling, for admonishing, for that for that bearing one another's burdens. If you are present, and leaders are important to this as well, but first and foremost for you to know how God has gifted you to work within the body, you need to be present. You need to be part of the assembly. You need to be integrated into it. You know, there's a lot of Christians that are very comfortable just floating on the perimeters of the fellowship of the believers. And you float and, you, oh, this church isn't quite like the church I grew up in, you know? And it has this problem and that problem and that problem. So I'm just going to kind of come and then I'm going to leave afterwards. And then I'm going to just come and I'm going to leave afterwards. And there's no binding of yourself with the body. And you're not going to know. And you're not going to be part of that proper function of the body. Yes, you may have accidental uh, moments where you exercise those gifts, but... But I think there will be more confusion than there will be clarity. I'll say this about myself uh, as an example, because I don't know all of your lives, but I didn't know that God had gifted me to be a pastor. I didn't know that he had gifted me or called me to this ministry until I was very much active in anything that I could be part of. Not trying to step on anybody's toes, but if there was a hole to fill, if I can be of help. And that's actually how I started preaching. There was a vacancy. There was a, a pastor who had stepped down in a church that needed somebody to come preach. And I'm sitting there and thinking how much I love to study the Bible, how much I love God and knowing him, and how much I was learning and growing as a Christian and all they needed was help. They didn't need somebody who was called to the ministry, 100% knew that they were going to be a preacher. And so I'm sitting there and fighting this urge to help and fill that gap because I can't do that. I can't be that person. And the first time I ended up preaching was the first time 
I believe that there was some calling there from God. And, and so it's not to say that we ought to go around pursuing every avenue. In fact, we'll see today, it's not about pursuing every avenue of church ministry, it's, but it is about involving yourself in the church. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, if one who teach, in the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. As Brother Jim mentioned, Paul says, he mentions seven different gifts here or measures of faith in these three verses. This is not an exhaustive list here either. We see both in Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians, we see in Colossians, there are other gifts not mentioned here. It's not the, the, the Apostle Paul's purpose, I believe, to describe every single possible spiritual gift that one might have in this. What he's trying to do is he's trying to describe how the church ought to function in unity, in harmony. Don't we need that exhortation? Don't we need that admonition in this world? It is hard for Christians to dwell together in unity. It's very hard. And probably the number one difficulty in that pursuit is pride. This is what Paul is trying to dispel within the body. This is his main prerogative. Now he's giving a list of seven gifts in order to give examples as to how these gifts differ and how they are measured out and are to be ex exercised by faith within the body. Let's look briefly at these seven. I don't often like to go through lists too slowly, and we won't do that this morning, but God willing, we'll, have, we'll understand a little bit better these seven. He says of prophecy in proportion to our faith, and this is very interesting because this is really the only gift of the seven that he describes that he doesn't merely just reiterate. So as, for instance, he says, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, he limits prophecy in proportion to our faith. Very similarly to what we saw in verse 3, the measure of faith, he says, in proportion to our faith. Now, there was an office of a prophet in the early church. Agabus was one, and Acts 21, 9, he seemingly filled this role of a prophet. In Ephesians 2, 20, we see the, the, the office describes there, described there, 3, 5 in Ephesians 4, 11, 12, we just read that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the, the office or the gift of the prophecy there was mentioned. And there is also a more general gift of prophecy, seemingly that could come upon uh, believers in this apostolic era, the four da daughters of Philip prophesy in Acts 21.9, seemingly on the spot. They start prophesying of what will happen to Paul when he comes into Jerusalem. We also see that gift uh, more described in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. Now this gift during the times of the apostles often had the attribution of foresight. They could tell the future as God gifted often his prophets in the Old Testament and, and the apostles in the New Testament to see what would happen in the future. And yet the fundamental component of the prophetic office, both in the Old and the New Testament, 
was to always speak faithfully the word of God, was to always give a clear understanding of what God had said, to reveal or clarify the word of God to God's people and to never contradict it. When Israel was under the greatest condemnation, the greatest judgment was when their prophets would prophesy to them part of the word of God. I'm reading Jeremiah and Lamentations together right now. And through all the lamentating, the lamenting of Jeremiah and Lamentations, there are two groups he calls out in condemnation especially. Yes, the, the people for their sin and their idolatry, but he calls out and he condemns explicitly the false prophets and the priests who healed the wound of his people lightly. And today I'll tell you this, is most of the condemnation of the church right now in this day and age comes from people who claim a prophetic office or pro prophetic gift who are not clearly proclaiming the word of God to their people and who are using that office or that gift to subvert the will of God and the word of God, Amen. to gain things of this earth and to gain a hearing and to gain crowds and to heap up temporal benefits, there are a lot of wolves in sheep clothing telling people that they are prophets from God this day. You know how the Bible tells us if we know that somebody has a gift of prophecy? Two things. One, it will never contradict the word of God. And two, it will always come true. Always. Moses is telling, God tells that to Moses in Deuteronomy. That's always going to come true. And, and the consequence for a false prophecy was capital punishment. Now, if Christians today exercise the gift of prophecy with that kind of reverence, we might see that in a different light and in a beneficial light. But what we see today in large part is the exercising of this gift to subvert souls. But this is a great spiritual gift that the church has been blessed with historically. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that the church was founded upon the apostles and the prophets, people having this gift. And today, I believe this gift continues, especially as the right understanding, the right interpretation of the word of God is promoted. If somebody comes to you and say, says, I have the gift of prophecy, this is going to happen to you, you take that with a grain of salt. You take that with a grain of salt. My brother had a gal from King's Chapel here on Kauai. They have prophecy conferences all the time. And he pro she prophesied over him nine times, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and nothing, nothing came of it, nothing. And so how does this gift exercise itself out today? I believe the gift of foresight as it was exercised in these apostolic days, was an apostolic sign. It was a means of establishing the church as 
the body of Christ in those early days. And I believe now we need to understand that while God is not limited, so as, as if he may not ever give somebody an understanding of something that might happen, the regular standard for how a prophet today will exercise that, that gift is by the right interpretation of Scripture. And in fact, the illumination of Scripture. A prophet should be someone who brings out the right sense of what God has revealed. You know, I don't know if you recognize this when you're reading your Bible. Is everything clear to you immediately? You're reading your Bible and you're just like, wow, I got it all. And this is so clear and, and insightful. But, but I think the gift of prophecy is, is that insight now to the truth of God's word. And it needs to be always referenced again and again. What did the Bereans do? Why were they so noble? Even the apostle who had all this authority, he came to them teaching and preaching the word of God. And what did Paul say about them? They were noble because they searched the scriptures daily. And so this is how this gift is exercised. And I think this is what he means by the proportion of faith. It needs to be exercised within the boundaries of the word of God. The word of God is its boundaries. That's the final authority. The proportion of faith, as John Murray said, is that the prophet, when he speaks God's word, is never to go beyond that which God has given him to speak and to be bound by the word of God. Second, service. He says, if service in our serving if service in our serving. And this may very well have to do, and I believe it does, with those that minister as deacons. There are those who say that the ministry of the word is spoken of here as it relates to the next gift, the gift of teaching. And so we have in the first, second, and third gifts this prophesying. Then you have the ministry of service, which is the ministry of the word. And then you have the ministry of teaching. But here's what I want us to understand here, and this is why I don't take that view is that Paul is trying to make it a difference between these gifts, to show that we operate in distinction even with these gifts that are in distinction from each other. Now, they may not be altogether separated, but there is a distinction here between the gift of prophecy and the gift of teaching or service here. I believe this service, which is the same word used in Acts 6, to, to bring these People, the, the, the apostles say, why should we be servers of tables? That's the same Greek word here used in service. I believe this speaks of the di diaconate, the deacon, those who are called to the ministry of serving into the helps of the physical needs of the church. So Paul says to those given this gift, if you have a calling to see within the operation of the spiritual life of God's people, that their needs are met within the church, the organized operation of the church. And that's important because we'll see that there is a giving gift that seems to just be off the cuff. Somebody has that and we'll see it later. But here it seems that this is an office and a calling to the deacon. So if you've called, if you've been given that gift, that measure of faith, use it. We need deacons in this church. You hearing? You hearing anything? <laughs> we need deacons in this church. 
Do you want to be part of meeting an organized effort, organizing that effort to see that needs are met in this church? To perhaps take a certain measure of that burden off of the elders so that the church is operating in the way that God has designed it. May God's spirit work in that. Third, in teaching, the one who teaches in his teaching. Included in the gift of teaching are elders and pastors, that they must be able or apt to teach, 1 Timothy 3, 2 says. And there may be, have been an office, a sole office of a teacher, Ephesians 4 might indicate, but I, I believe this has to do with those who he's, God has called as elders, pastors, teachers, uh, those who assist God's people with understanding God's word, his truth. Without question, the gift of teaching certainly was given to the apostles and prophets and evangelists and even sometimes to the deacons. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen gives a remarkable teaching of the Old Testament, an enlightened teaching, you might say a prophetic teaching of it there in Acts chapter 7. But the one who teaches in his teaching... You see, he's staying within the parameters of his calling. This is what I want us to see about these gifts. Exhortation, verse 8, and some view this as admonishment. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. And John Murray again points out that the difference between teaching and exhortation is that the former has to do with the informing of the minds. I think it's a good distinction. The teacher needs to inform the mind. You know, we need renewed minds. We just read that in verse 2. You need your minds renewed, but the, exhort, the exhorter has to, to, has to do with the ministration to the heart, to the rest of the man. The gift of exhortation is no small thing. Sometimes it calls for correction and admonishment. You know, people can be very bad at admonishment. You can have people that Come to somebody and they say, you know, out of love, uh, you need to, I admonish you to consider the word of God and repent and, and confess your sin. And it might come across as the most hateful and despising word somebody could ever receive. And then I've seen this, somebody else comes to that person uh, with maybe even similar words and the person is just receiving it. Now that's God's work on the heart as well and the one who heard the word, but there is a gift here of exhortation. People who can come to others with hard things to say, and in that hard thing that's said, even comfort that person. The truth being said with humility and comfort and edification. This is the kind of exhortation I think that's being spoken of. The apples of gold in a setting of silver, that's a word fitly spoken, someone who knows when to speak. Proverbs 25.11 perhaps helps define what exhortation means. Contribution, number five. The one who contributes in generosity. Now we are all called in some sense to contribute, to be givers. And here's what I meant as a distinction from service. Service there, I believe, is fulfilling that calling in an office, in an in an orderly fashion, in an organized way within the church. But 
contribution here, while it's in the church, it may just be that God has given you an extra measure of benevolence to where you see a need in anything that you have at your disposal, whether you have much or little, you are ready to meet that. And that's in this church, I'll tell you. Both on both scales, if you have more or less, I see that gift is exercised in this church. And to do it generously, another way of translating generously, the word for generously, some argue is simply, simplicity. And this goes along with what Jesus says, when you give your alms, don't go in front of people blowing and tooting your own horn, saying, look how much I gave. You know, brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so was in need, and I just, you know, I have such grace in my heart that I met that need, and I saw it, and, you know, but I'm humble about it, right? It, that's, that's maybe what this generously means. Your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing. Do it. Do it. Do it sincerely. Number six, leadership. The one who leads with zeal. Now, almost every other translation that I could find translated the word, translated zeal here in the ESV, it translated it diligence. Probably a better translation, but the one who leads, lead with diligence. Diligence has the idea of not quitting doing it rightly, doing it well. But as I understood, as I studied a little more, the reason why they translated this zeal is because behind a diligent leadership, there needs to be somebody who wants and is willing to be that leader, who desires to do that, fill that role of leadership well. Not for the sake of just being a leader, but for the sake of the one who called. That's important. And we'll see that, that goal of all of these. So leadership, the one who leads with diligence or zeal. Now I want to caution you that Paul is limiting leadership here. You see that? All of these, he's, this is a measure of faith he's talking about. These gifts have been given. God has measured them out. Not everybody is the leader of the church. Now, that's a huge, important thing to say in these days of egalitarianism. And I'm not just talking to women. I'm talking to men. God decides hierarchy. Otherwise, there is no authority in the end. Everything is flattened out and all becomes a matter of noses and who's more powerful in the moment. That's an awful way. That's a tyrannical way that human beings will tend to rule over each other. God is setting the bounds here. He's limiting leadership. So in your involvement, you need to be involved. Be careful about the lust for power. Be careful about it. Anybody who lusts for power in the church of Christ shouldn't have it. Who that would be greatest among you, let him be your servant, Jesus said. So lead 
with diligence and zeal, but don't let it go to your head. Remember what he said at the beginning? You shouldn't think higher of yourselves than you ought to think. If you are called the leadership, it's God who's bestowed that gift on you. That's where faith comes in. That's where the humility comes in. This is what the world can't understand about leadership and power. They can't understand this. Is that the person who is in leadership within the church is a person who has been given that calling and gift to do it and is called to do it by God. It's not of their own Abilities, naturally speaking, you know, one of the great arguments for why women should be preachers and pastors and elders in the church is because, hey, they have all the gifts of men. And let me tell you something. As somebody who had a mom who was, as John Piper said, omnicompetent and who has a wife that is, we see in our wives and in our moms all the gifts and capabilities that we have in many ways, not physically, right, men? Amen. And the difference, ultimately, is what God has defined in these roles. It's not that we're innately better or bigger or stronger. That's not why God has put us in charge of the church, men, in a position of eldership or leadership in that regard. And we don't lord it over anybody. It's because God has authority to give it. That's, that's the ultimate fundamental reason why leadership exists in the way that it exists in the church. And if you don't like that, you don't like God's leadership. God didn't, you didn't make the distinction, I didn't make the distinction on what we would be when we were born, did we? And neither do we make that distinction, finally, ultimately, in the way that we are exercising our gifts in the church. This is granted to us by God. And finally, he closes with this. Perhaps he closes with this on the heels of leadership, number seven, mercy ministry. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Maybe he places the gift of mercy next to the zeal or the diligent leader on purpose. You're too zealous as a leader, you might forget about mercy. Maybe that's why he does this. A good leader who leads diligently needs also to have those whose aim and his own aim to be Christ-like mercy. You know, a, a diligent leader will push. He will pull. He will try to maximize your potential, spiritually speaking, within the body of Christ. But we must be merciful. We must have mercy within this body. The mercy here is probably more personal than merely the gift of giving, which is to give of things and, and the contribution as is needed. Here is the person who prays with others, consoles others, who mourns with those who mourns, and as a principle from the heart, bears even the burdens of the struggles of their brother's or sister's sin along with them. The person who is willing to get uncomfortable with you, to sit with you, and convey to you the mercy that God has showed to them. 
in all aspects of life. What a great ministry. What a great gift. Now, in closing, and I'll be brief, I have two points to make in all of these things. Paul's purpose, number one, in all of this is to teach us of the boundaries of our gifts and callings so that we won't think of ourselves, as he said there in verse 3, more highly than we ought to think. That is, that we seek ever more influence, ever more improvement into our position, or that we, on the other hand, are not involved at all. So on one hand, he's saying you ought to be part of this functioning body properly because God has endowed you with these things, but he's also endowed you so as to limit your function so that the body functions properly. Do you see? This is the argument. The heart is not the hand. (laughs) The liver is not the kidney. The lungs do not operate like the ribs. The distinction is important for the whole here. The various gifts benefit the whole body. If you get nothing else from what I have to say, get this. Your individual calling and gifts, graces within the body of Christ have been measured or proportioned to you by God for the proper functioning of the body that is worked out by faith which gives glory to Christ in the end. And we'll see that in this second point. I want to give a little bit of time to something that's very contemporarily important to us, living in the society we're living in. And we can't overlook this, what's happening here, and the grace of it. That is the significance of what we're learning in light of what's become a modern problem because of secularism. Now, when I say secularism, I think... I say of the thinking that comes through man expecting to find the answers by our own enlightened thinking. Enlightenment thinking, you know the the movement of the historical movement of the enlightenment, promoted an idea called individualism or promoted the autonomy of the individual. Now, the Enlightenment, as I'm speaking about it here, was a secular idea that we can come to certain truths without revelation. In fact, we have to, because a lot of the Enlightenment thinkers, they weren't regarding God as an involved God, if anything, or they weren't thinking in reference to classical theism, historic Christianity. They were trying to come to truths apart from the Word of God, apart from what we observe in it and what we come to in its authority. Let's, by our own rational and imperial advancements, understand how mankind works and the world works. And one of the things they, they established was this theory called individualism, the autonomy of the individual. And this became very much part of the freedoms that we enjoy in our country. Much of the freedoms that were promoted in the Western world came from the notion of individuality. Duty towards others was often lost in such a view or as merely a means to the end. As one success or failure was generally attributed to the self, picking oneself up by the bootstraps, your own bootstraps, was 
your main purpose in life. Now, individualism recognizes the importance of the individual, which is good. It also, as I said, recognized the need for various collective agreements in society to advance the value or the, the end of the individual. You say, this is boring, I don't want to know this. This is important. The purpose of these of all this was for the benefit, as I said, of the individual. And the end or goal in that ideal, if you're an individualist, is always then the betterment of the individual. Self-help books love this, this theory. And as far as the theory goes, our nation, John Stuart Mill was one great proponent of that, really gravitated toward individualism. Advancing yourself, bettering yourself, making something of yourself, being more than what you were born to be in. It, it created in many a goal in life to make your life better. But did you understand what the end goal in that idea was? The betterment of the individual. That's the goal. That's a problem as a Christian. That's a big problem as a Christian. Enlightenment thinking also actually inadvertently gave rise to the ideas of two men called Karl Marx and Engels, and so to communism, which came through them. I say inadvertently because one of the failures of individualism was seen very early on when people started not caring about others and used others as a means just to amplify or accentuate their own success and their own well-being in the world, which is perfectly valid if if your individual end is yourself, the betterment of yourself, who you got to step on in order to get there seems to be a valid point, right? So these men, both atheists, said, you can't do that to your fellow man. And so they went to the opposite end, and they claimed, one central claim of communism was to, be, to have the loss of the individual, no individual identity in it. You're not important. You have nothing but what we tell you to, to do and to be, and even that is just part of the whole. It's not you having no significance, the individual. In fact, you should be absorbed into the whole as it is. The end or goal of communism is a unity that bears no distinction between its parts. Therefore, the end goal is the betterment of the collective, which is perceived as being a classless, distinctionless, even unnoticeable, giftless society. It doesn't matter what you were born with intellectually, physically, there's no difference. The problems, as I've said a little bit, individualism leads to the excess of self, while communism cannot recognize and does not recognize, will not recognize God's sovereignty and providential distinctions of individual qualities, gifts, callings, attributes, etc. 
So both of these are failures in themselves, according to the Christian worldview. Your value is not based on what you do for yourself in this life, according to God's word. And neither is your value lost in a, just a blob of community. God has made you unique. He's called you. As we've seen here, he's given you a unique gift. He's made you to differ from people within the church. Both of these failures are accounted for in Christ and how he's ordered his church to function properly. And I think we need to be thankful for this. There's a lot of confusion today. Politically speaking, should I be an individualist? Should I be a communist? We need to be biblicists. We need to be Christians. Look at what God has laid out for us. That every one of you who have been given different unique gifts, you have a unique and particular and a special part to play in the operation of the whole. And that is necessary for the, for the health of the whole. You see, the individual is important as he or she bears that function properly within the body, which causes the body to work as a whole properly. We have a real opportunity as Christians to show the wisdom of God in making us diverse and yet uniting us in one body. What is the end goal of our unity? The end goal is not our own individual quality, and it's not the quality of the body merely. What is it? Colossians 1.18 says it well, and then we'll pray. He is the head of the body, Christ, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Individualism fails because the individual cannot be preeminent. Communism fails because the commune cannot be preeminent. The unity and diversity that God brings in the church means that Christ is preeminent. That's the end of all of it. Let's thank God for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word, which makes sense of what really the smartest men in the world have been battling for thousands of years, finding unity and diversity. From the beginning, you made man male and female, the two most diverse creatures on this planet, made them different. We are very different. And yet you've brought them together in marriage to one flesh, to be one flesh. And this is what you're doing still in the church today. As the body of Christ, Lord, you are bringing us together. And we are members one of another, and we are members of Christ. And he is the head of the body. And the goal of our unity, the goal of our distinct gifts that you've given to us, being worked out in unity, is his preeminence. So I pray that we'd rejoice to pursue an understanding of how those gifts are worked out, or just the exercising of those spiritual gifts as we have been taught.
that we ought to exercise them. Lord, uh, you know um, our frame. You know that we have doubts in ourselves. You know that we are limited. You know we have failings to pursue the glory of men and power and prestige and acclaim. I pray that we would see that the preeminence of Christ as it's worked out in this church would be our great end and our great goal. In Jesus' name, amen.